Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab was sent to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Well, good morning. Good morning. And uh, let me uh, add my welcome to Joe's. My name is Danny. And uh, if we haven't met, I hope we do uh, later on. Uh, thank you, Luke, for that reading. Thank you, Joe, for your introduction. And uh, let me encourage you to keep that chapter open uh, to Samuel 11. Uh, you'll also find an outline on the inside of the sheet. I think uh, one of the hardest lessons that we can learn in life is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Of course, we like to tell ourselves that this is not true, 
that as long as nobody sees our sin, we can get away with it. It reminds me of a time I heard about when there was a sudden power cut in an upmarket city center department store. I don't know if you heard the story. All the lights went off, all the alarms were deactivated, and the doors were left flung open. And uh, the department store added up later that it had lost £50,000 worth of goods through shoplifting in the space of a minute. Respectable, middle-class shoppers just grabbed what they could that was near them and walked out the door without paying jewellery, clothes, electronics. A well-heeled old lady uh, was seen walking down the street with a Black & Decker drill tucked under her fur coat. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? that much of what passes off as moral restraint is actually just the fear of being caught. If I can get away with it, I will, because I think there will be no consequences. But the Bible tells us this is not the case. Listen to a couple of examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Proverbs 6 on the screen is in the context of warning against adultery. And the wise man says this, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes getting burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Sin has consequences. Or Galatians 6 from the New Testament, where Paul says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction, but the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. The Bible is clear. Sin has consequences. Well, if the Bible is so clear about this, then why do we so easily delude ourselves that some sins have no consequences? Why do we tell ourselves, like the people in that department store, that we can get away with it? Well, I think the section of the book of 2 Samuel that we're studying at at the moment provides a brilliant and powerful answer to this question. 2 Samuel 11, as we've just been reminded, records King David's spectacular fall into sin and self-destruction through his adultery with Bathsheba. And what we need to remember as we look at this, as we follow the story, is that we are not looking here at some monster with an unusual capacity for evil. It is fun to look at stories like that. That's what Netflix is all about, isn't it? Unusual people with unusual capacities for evil, like the kind of the gangsters in James Bond. We're not like them. But no, we are not looking at a monster here. We're looking at King David. And we're doing the much more uncomfortable thing at looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's word because we are learning that even the great and godly King David, God's chosen king, the best of us, has, as the prophet Jeremiah put it, a heart that is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. We are looking at David not because he is different to us, but because he is one of us. And that is hard, but it's also good. Well, let me just quickly recap the story that we looked at last time in verses 1 to 5. And if you'll allow me just a little bit of artistic license, I want to try and retell the story so far from David's point of view. So 1 to 5 goes something like this. Well, I've sent the troops out with Joab to finish the job with the Ammonites. It won't take long. It's just a mopping up exercise. Meanwhile, there's plenty for me to do here in Jerusalem. And it is actually quite nice to be safe behind these walls for once. 
well, I haven't been idle. I've had a busy day. I need a little bit of rest. There's a lot on my mind. The spring weather is hot, and so I take a short siesta and then go for a stroll on the roof of my palace to cool down as evening comes on. And that's when I saw her. I was just looking out at the town, and there she was, a young woman bathing, beautiful, naked, the evening shadows accentuating her beauty. Of course, I look, and I carry on looking. There's no harm in that, is there? I mean, after all, it's just a look. Well, she is strikingly beautiful, and so I decide I just have to find out who she is. I send a messenger, and she turns back with the details. Bathsheba, lovely name. So, she's married. But there's no harm in asking. I just needed to know. And given that her husband's away, I invite her over. No harm in getting to know a neighbor, is there? Well, one thing leads to another, and we end up having sex. I suppose, if I'm honest, I knew in my heart of hearts that this was bound to happen. After all, I am a red-blooded male, some say an alpha male, a leader with a lot on my shoulders. I need to let off steam occasionally. It was over in a flash, a one-night stand, an impulsive act of indiscretion. But really, there is no harm done. No one's been hurt. I send her home. And that is the end of the matter. I will put it behind me. No regrets, no remorse, no consequences. I'm the king of Israel. Life will carry on. No one need ever know. Well, the irony of that last comment should strike us, shouldn't it? Because here we are 3,000 years later talking about the most famous adulterous affair in the history of the world. And David's dilemma, which is going to take the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12 to resolve, begins, notice, with the deeply inconvenient truth in verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, before we get into the next uh, section, I want to just pause there and, and analyze David's dilemma a little bit, because it seems to me he has two and only two options open to him at this point, confession or covering. Option one is confession. He can turn away from his sin before more damage is done. He can take responsibility for his actions. He can trust God for forgiveness. Now, how do I know David could have done that? I know that because David knows that God is merciful by nature. See, by this stage, he has almost certainly not written Psalm 32, which we read from earlier. Blessed are he whose transgressions are forgiven. But he could have written it because he knew passages like Exodus 36. When the Lord came down on Mount Sinai and stood there with Moses and passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This was at the heart of Israel's belief. This was God's name. This was what God is like, compassionate, forgiving. And yes, as David weighed it up, there may well have been consequences under the law, serious consequences because the law of the land said adultery was punishable by death. But David knew it was in God's character to forgive. He knew the path of mercy and forgiveness was open to him. 
however difficult it might be to face up to what he had done. Option one, confession. David knew in his heart of hearts that that was the best option, though painful. But even while he knew this, a second option suggests itself to him. If he was not willing to confess his sin, if it was too painful to confess, then the only other option is to cover his sin, to cover it up with a trail of deception, to somehow keep it secret so no one would ever come to know the truth. And so at the end of verse 5, we find ourselves for the second time in this narrative in one of those painful, all-too-human moments where we see what might have happened versus what did happen. As is so often the case in life, as each one of us has faced numerous times this week, we find ourselves with that choice. Neither of them easy, but being human is not easy. Neither choice easy, but one of them leads to life and the other leads to death. Confession or covering. And the reason the rest of the chapter is here is to show us the path that David does take, and it is a path of covering and deception and desperation and then delusion. And those are the three points we'll use to look at the passage. Well, let's look at his deception first of all in 6 to 11. One of the things we've learned in our time in 1 and 2 Samuel is David is a brilliant man in awkward situations. Who could forget the way he dealt with Goliath with those few stones? Or do you remember the time in 1 Samuel 21, if you were here, when he pretended to be mad? He was sort of smashing up the furniture and dribbling from his beard to protect himself from the Philistines. He's a quick thinker, brilliant strategist. He is able to get himself out of almost any hole. And true to form, David now springs into action He's going to deal with this adultery business. He's got a plan. His plan is simple and brilliant. All he needs to do is make it look like the child is Bathsheba's husband's. Easy. So, to make this happen, he sets a trap for Uriah. Verse 6, David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Verse 6 tells us three things. First, it tells us that Uriah's husband, uh, Bathsheba's husband is a man of foreign descent who happens to be a soldier in David's army. He was among those being sent to, the, to fight the war against the Ammonites. That's the first thing. The second thing we see in verse 6 is that word send again three times in one verse that we saw last week sort of captures David's sense of power and control. David barely moves throughout the chapter. He just sends. He sends a word. To Joab, Joab sends. And David still believes that he holds his destiny in his hands. He cannot control female fertility, but he can manage the fallout for this sin by himself. And then the third thing we're reminded of in verse 6 are those two contrasting horizons that we saw last week. Those two relative dangers. On the one hand, we're reminded of the battlefield with its obvious, terrifying bodily dangers. And on the other hand, the peace and calm and security of the king's house. And so it seems, doesn't it, that as David calls Uriah from the battlefield to the palace, it would seem to Uriah that he is moving from a place of danger to a place of safety. 
But nothing could be further from the truth. Uriah is moving from the honesty of the battlefield to the deception of the palace. And we're to feel this danger as we read verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. David's deception begins in earnest in verse 7, as he casually asks, as if he's kind of summoning this person for a report about literally the shalom, the peace of the war and the soldiers and Joab. And that word is repeated three times for emphasis. How is the shalom of Joab? How is the shalom of the soldiers? How is the shalom of the war? Well, no doubt Uriah gave David an answer, but the narrator doesn't report Uriah's reply because David is not actually interested in those things. No, his mind is firmly set on other matters. Verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, washing your feet is David's way of encouraging Uriah to go home and enjoy some of the creature comforts of home life. It's tough being a soldier, isn't it? Have a wash. Have a decent meal. You're a lucky man. You've been called home for this brief sort of weekend break. Wash your feet. Have a decent meal. And whether by implication or whether there is some sort of euphemism there, make love to your wife. What's her name again? I don't think we've met. In verse 9, we are told that David sent a gift, almost certainly a hamper of food from the palace, a little kind of picnic basket. Here is a lovely meal, candlelit dinner for you and your wife. Romantic evening, dinner for two, and one thing will lead to another. Now, this is not out of character for David to treat his soldiers this way. Remember, he is famously generous in his hospitality with Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son. Of course, we know, though, as readers, that he is not being generous. This is a cynical trap for Uriah. He desperately needs Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife so the baby can be attributed to him. And that'll be the end of the matter. The only problem is, David has not reckoned with Uriah's integrity. For a tiny moment, the narrator holds us in suspense by showing us the action from David's point of view. And verse 9 begins with the words, Uriah lay, a parallel to verse 4, where we read, David lay. And so David sends him away, and he expects, he fully expects, that he will do what any man in his position would do. Go home, have a meal, wash your feet, sleep with your wife, before you go back to the battlefield. But now we read that that is not what happened. Verse 9, but Uriah lay at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And here begins a tussle of wills between David and Uriah, which I think makes some of the best dialogue in the book. And what this dialogue is designed to do is to open up this contrast between Uriah's innocence and integrity and David's increasingly shocking duplicity. And so Uriah becomes the mirror on the wall by which we get to see the ugliness of David's sin. So look at verse 10. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Now it's at this point that we may just begin to wonder what Uriah really knows or thinks. Is he completely blind to what has happened, or is he in the know, or does he suspect? And if you saw uh, my little trailer that went out on, on Friday, you may have done that exercise of reading the passage those two different ways. 
Presumably, David cannot have been the only person to have known of his meeting with Bathsheba. There are messengers and spies coming and going. If you've ever seen Downton Abbey, you'll know that the servants downstairs know everything happening upstairs. Every unorthodox liaison, every locked door, all the comings and goings are known by the servants downstairs, all the whispering and gossip. It's hard to imagine David has kept this completely secret. And it's possible to imagine, isn't it, as Uriah came into the palace, someone just gave him wind that his wife had been in the palace. We may also wonder what Uriah made of this sudden call back from the war, David's insistence that he goes home, the gift following home in verse 9, and now this slightly weird, intense interest in his domestic arrangements. Wouldn't Uriah's suspicions be aroused? Maybe. Maybe not. The narrator doesn't tell us. And the reason the narrator doesn't tell us is because, of course, David doesn't know himself what Uriah knows or thinks. But imagine with that ambiguity in mind what the next verse would do for David if he were listening. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go back to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Well, whatever you think, whether you think Uriah knows something or whether you think he's completely innocent and ignorant, these words in verse 11 are a stunning rebuke to David. Every word in verse 11 does something to shine a light on David's sin. Notice, for example, the reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Last time the Ark was mentioned, it was in David's concern that the ark, that wooden box that contained the commandments and symbolized God's presence with his people, was dwelling in tents while David was living in a house. But that doesn't seem to be his concern now. Remember that the ark contained the covenant and the commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet, commit adultery. You shall not murder. And in contrast to this, notice Uriah's loyalty to God's cause, his submission to king and country. He calls Joab his master. He calls David his lord. All this from a man of foreign descent. And yet he is the true Israelite. And finally notice his question in verse 11. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? Uriah cannot stomach the idea that his fellow Israelites are suffering the dangers and discomforts of war while he luxuriates at home with food and drink and marital sex, even though all of these things would have been perfectly proper. And yet, can you see how he's shining the mirror into David's heart? Because these are the very things that David has done and had no right to do. And so here we have the mirror held up to David, a foreign man, revealing himself to be the model Israelite, shaming the king to his core. And you would think at this point that David would come to his senses. But he doesn't. He continues. Why is that the case? Because there is something in David's heart that tells him that covering sin is a better option 
than confessing sin, even now. And so we read on, and the deception now turns to desperation in verses 12 to 13. David's first plan has failed. It's time for another plan. Verse 12, David said to him, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Clearly, David couldn't do anything else to persuade Uriah to go to his house and sleep with his wife. That would have begun to get a little bit suspicious. So David orders him to stay one more day, and this gives him time to come up with plan B. Verse 13, it's a fairly coarse plan. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. I think David's sin is meant to shock us at this point. Here is David, who at every point in the book has stood out as kind, generous, noble, selfless. You may remember the time he refused to eat until the sun had gone down to show proper respect for someone who'd died. You may remember the time he opened his table to the marginalized in chapter 9. And this is the same David who now forces this man to eat and drink. Who deliberately gets him drunk. So that his infuriatingly noble standards will be whittled away by alcohol. And he will at last stagger home and sleep with his wife. But David has not reckoned again with Uriah's integrity. Verse 13b. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. As one commentator puts it, Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. Uriah is a mirror of godliness that the narrator is holding up to reveal David's heart. Here is the king of Israel with no regard to God's law, no sense of the seriousness of what he's done, and treating this man with utter contempt. All he cares about is not being found out. How has it come to this? Well, because Jeremiah was right when he said, the human heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is a story about the hardening, blinding effects of human sin. And how each stage becomes harder and harder to confess. What began as a minor deception, an attempt to cover his tracks, will in time lead to murder. And so we come thirdly to a point of total self-delusion. Look with me again at verse 11. And notice that the very last words we ever hear from Uriah's lips are a solemn oath that he will not go home and do what David wishes. He says this. He says, as surely as you live, I will not do this thing. Look at it on the screen. Look at what he literally says. He says, your life and the life of your soul, if I will do this thing. Now, this is very sobering. Because what he's saying is that if David continues down this track, it is his very soul that is in danger. David's life, David's soul, is bound up in the choices that he is making. And this is very sobering, given that 
just to give you a kind of plot spoiler for next week, it is Uriah who will die on the battlefield to cover David's sin. But Uriah is not worried about his own safety. He is worried about David's soul. It is David who is in danger because it is David who is deluded himself. And we need to ask ourselves, if we're going to learn anything from this, we need to ask ourselves, how does this happen? How can someone as godly and wise and well-taught as David fall in such a spectacular way? How is it possible to end up in this place? See, sometimes I I hear of a, a church leader falling spectacularly. There have been some horrible falls recently. A church leader who everybody respected, who you suddenly hear he's fallen, fallen into sin. And my temptation is to think, well, that could never have been me. I'm not in that place at all. But what I should think is that could have been me. And as we look at David's life, we are not meant to think here is some James Bond gangster. Here is a man like you and me. How is it possible to end up in this place? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Well, it's really simple. I think it's because we love sinning. Because sin is nice. Sin is so good, it feels so good, and... As Joe reminded us before, because actually confession is painful. So you remember last week we said that sexual pleasure and nakedness are good things. If you weren't here, let me say it again. A naked woman is a very good thing to look at. These are good gifts that God has given to be enjoyed without shame in the context of which he's made them to strengthen marriage to bind a man and woman together in intimacy, to fuel the faithfulness of marriage, as we were praying earlier. But, because of our sinful hearts, we use these things in ways that fall outside God's standard. We want the gift without the giver. And when it comes to sex, this includes sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage, any sexual activity between members of the same sex, physical adultery, but also, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, sexual fantasy, lustful thoughts concerning someone who's not your marriage partner. These and other things all fall outside the biblical standard and belong to the world of shame. Now, God has made these things, these good and desirable things, but we desire them in ways that are against God's intention. And a couple of people reminded me last week of uh, the bit in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, when the senior demon writes to instruct his younger demon about how to wreck the soul of the Christian. And he says, never forget that when we are dealing with pleasure, we are on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made all the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one single pleasure. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced in ways that he is forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. See, God has made 
good things, but we enjoy them in sinful ways, and the devil traps us by this means. Let me give you an illustration. I've never been very good at at fishing. I've uh, tried, dabbled, caught one or two things, but I've never been very successful. But I do know one thing, that if you're going to catch a fish, you've got to put something on the hook. If you just drop a hook into bare water, or rather drop a bare hook into water, you are not going to catch anything because fish are not actually stupid. You have to cover the hook with something that looks tempting and delicious. A bit of bait, a worm, a fly, a lure, a spinner. It has to be alluring. It has to be desirable, so desirable that the fish forgets the hook behind the bait. And so it is with sin. Which is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when lust takes control of a person, Satan doesn't fill them with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. God and reality fade from view. We forget the hook behind the bait. And this is exactly what has happened here. David, innocently strolling on his house, happens to see through no fault of his own a beautiful naked woman. And at that moment, it's the forgetfulness of God. He didn't decide at that moment he was going to commit adultery. He didn't decide at that moment that he suddenly hated God. He didn't decide at that moment that he was going to become a murderer. He just looked, and the look became a lustful look, a fixation that would not be denied. And this is how sin works, isn't it? No one wakes up and thinks, today I'm going to commit adultery and wreck my life. No, sin comes dressed as something good, something that will bring pleasure and joy without consequences, something I really can't do without. And then as we get deeper and deeper into sin and we start covering our tracks with deception, the the pain of confession becomes too great. And the pleasure becomes something we can't live without, and so we keep on deluding ourselves. And the whole point of this chapter is simply to hold up the mirror and say, this could be you. This could be you. And if someone as godly and wise as David can fall, then what hope is there for us? Well, keep coming because we're going to see the answer to that question In chapter 12, we're going to see it wonderfully. But for now, I want to conclude by returning to those two options that we saw David had at the beginning. Remember, the point of decision, he faced just two options. I don't think there is a third. If you can think of a third, tell me afterwards, but I think there are only two. To cover his sin or to confess his sin. And I think both those options are hard, both are painful. One leads to life, one leads to death. Let's think firstly about the business of covering sin. What does it do to us? Well, I wonder if you notice something as we've been reading chapter 11, that there is no reference to God until the very last line. No reference to God. And I think that reflects the state of David's heart at this time. He's been hardened, as the writer to the Hebrew puts it, by sin's deceitfulness. 
He's deluded himself that he can handle this situation himself. And in his shame, he pushes God further and further away. And many people trapped in secret sins will know this so well. The guilt, the shame of sin itself, exacerbated by the lies that normally honest people end up telling, coupled with feelings of worthlessness and failure, leads to pushing God away and an eventual coldness towards God, a lack of assurance, a deafness to his word, and so the cycle goes on. And the more that goes on, the more difficult it is to confess. Just listen again to David in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, that is, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sat as in the heat of summer. I think all of us know, don't we, at some point, that feeling deep down in our bones of unconfessed sin, the misery of it, the paralysis of it, where God feels far away. And this is made worse by something in our culture which we need to talk about. I'm not talking about the kind of the sexualized nature of our culture, it's the individualism of our culture. The rampant individualism that we have inherited. So that we end up thinking, in this situation, I'm all on my own. It's just me and my sin. And we think the last thing I want to do, the very last thing I want to do, (laughs) is come and talk to you guys about it. Because you are all so holy aren't you? And you look at it from up here. The very last thing I want to do is talk about my horrid sin to a bunch of lovely, godly, respectable people that I find in church. Great mistake. Because which of us, if someone opens up to a sin, does not find an echo of it in our own hearts? And we have bought the lie of the culture that we're on our own. Actually, we have a tremendous resource in church which the world does not have. We have the fellowship of sinners in the church family. We have each other. And I want to say say at a practical level that this is very important when it comes to sins of secrecy and shame because Satan loves to force those into the darkness so that we will fight those battles on our own. But we can't fight them on our own. We are meant to spur each other on in the Christian life. And I just want to show you something very, very radical in the Bible. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 3. He says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hard by sin's deceitfulness. Now, can you actually believe this? What he is saying is that if one of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart, we are all collectively responsible. Can you actually believe that? So countercultural. 
that if one member of the church is hardened by sin, we are, we are all somehow responsible for that. And therefore, we are all collectively responsible for the, what he calls the encouragement, the daily encouragement, so that we are not hardened by sin, so that we will keep making it to the last day. It's so countercultural. And this is why it's so spiritually disastrous to cut yourself off from church. To stay away from hearing the word. To, as he puts it in chapter 10, to give up meeting together. It's a disaster spiritually. So if you're trapped in sin, if you're caught in this spiral, brilliant that you're here this morning. Do not give up meeting together. Do not cut yourself off from the fellowship of of other Christians because those other Christians are sinners like you. So there's a very practical thing here. That if there's something that you've identified in your life that resonates here with what's in David's life, a very practical thing you can do is talk to somebody. Find somebody you can trust. You don't have to go up to some random person you've never met before. That's probably not a good idea. Find someone you can trust who loves you and the gospel enough to help you. And just say to them, I need some help. Covering sin. Second option, though, is to confess. Because what we're going to see as we get to chapter 12, when the word of God finally comes to David, is the only way back, is actually to turn back to the very God that he has offended. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? The God we run away from is the same God we turn back to. Make your secret sin an open secret between you and God, because of course he knows it already. Whether it's pornography, or greed, or laziness, or gambling, or some kind of addiction, or adultery, or stealing, or something else entirely, make your secret sin an open matter between you and God, because he knows it already. And having turned to God, confess to anyone who's directly hurt by your sin. Now this can begin with a very small step. A young man once said to me, in despair, he said, you know, my mind is, is a sewer. And I said, that's great. It's great that you know that. Imagine if you didn't realize it, you were like a sewer rat, just happily swimming around. That's a great start to recognize the problem. But sometimes it can be an incredibly costly and messy and courageous thing to do. To come and confess old sins. Sins that have been secret for a long time. And when we do, sometimes life seems to explode around us. Relationships are damaged and reordered. Memories stirred. Recriminations began. Anger, resentment, blame, shame. This is very hard to do. Because sins have consequences. But if there is one lesson from 2 Samuel 11, is that this is always the right thing to do. It's always right to confess. 
Why? Because God is gracious and ready to forgive. How do we know that? Well, remember that David's story is part of a bigger story. The story that looked ahead to one who we saw in chapter 7 is like David. A son of David, one who comes from his own body, who's made of the same flesh and blood that he is, who will be tempted in all the same ways he will be. And yet will live on this earth without sin. And the more we learn of David's failure, the more remarkable the promised son of David will be. And we know this, don't we? Because sin does, in fact, have consequences. How do we know that sin has consequences? We know by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the biggest consequence of sin is that this sinless son of David was crucified for our sins. When he hung on the cross, he was bearing the consequences, not for our sin, sorry, not for his sin, but for ours. Remember Proverbs chapter 6. No one scoops fire on his lap without getting burnt. As he hung on the cross, he was being burnt. No one walks on hot coals without getting his feet scorched. As he hung on the cross, he was being scorched for our adulteries. Galatians 6, you reap the destruction that you sow. As he hung on the cross, he was reaping the destruction we had sown. And so how do you know sin has consequences? Look at the cross, where Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that is why it is always right to fling yourself on his mercy, to come back from your wandering and stand at the foot of the cross and know two truths simultaneously there, the consequence of sin and the forgiveness of sin. And this is what in time David did, as we read in Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What a great God we have. What a great gospel we have. Let's pray together after a moment of quiet. Let me read from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. And Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness for our self-deception. We are sorry for our sin and confess it to you now, confident as we approach the throne of grace in our time of need. Please forgive us. Please purify us from all unrighteousness and help each one of us here to trust in Jesus who has borne the penalty of all our sin on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen.